This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Paul Guttaker is the executive director of the Brazos Fellows Program, and he's a lecturer in history at Baylor University. As director of the Brazos Fellows, Professor Guttaker oversees a residential fellowship for college graduates to deepen their study of Christian theology and history. He earned his PhD in history from Baylor University and has authored numerous peer-reviewed articles and essays. But today we're going to be talking about his book, The Old Faith in a New Nation, American Protestants and the Christian Past. That book's the topic of our conversation today. Paul Guttiger, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, your book is really fascinating. And uh, I, I think the first question I want to ask is the genesis of the book. So how exactly in working in American church history did you come up with using the idea of history as uh, as American denominations, for example, sought to define themselves? Yeah, this, you know, many stories, I think, of scholarship are both intellectual and personal. And I think that's true for me with this project. I grew up in um, Bible churches and Baptist churches and was always interested in this question of how Protestants understood themselves in relationship to the rest of the church and especially church history, in part because this was just not something that my tradition growing up talked much about. And so as I started studying church history in college and then in grad school, one of my first questions was, you know, where does um, evangelical Protestantism, where does it locate itself in the story of the church? And I first started to press into that question by researching some 18th century evangelicals who wrote church histories and who really wanted to recover the history of the church for evangelicals in the early evangelical movement. And then having done that, I started my studies at Baylor in American religion. And um, because I had done this work on 18th century historians, I knew that evangelicals had written church history. I knew that this was out there. But the more I read the scholarly literature on American religion, and especially the ways in which American religion became more American in the in the 19th century, the Second Great Awakening and all this, I was I just couldn't find any sense, any reference really to the Christian past. And the assumption tended to be, um, well, of course, American Protestants had no time for that. Right. They were looking forward. Their eyes are to the frontier. You know, they're not looking back to Europe. They only need the Bible. They're they're you know forward looking, not not bound to tradition in the past. And even the best scholarship, which I learned so much from on American religion, I think tended to assume, in in part because this was often what American evangelicals said that they had no tradition, that they didn't need history, and um, but I suspected that this wasn't the whole picture precisely because I knew some of these historical works that have been written. So I started looking for them. And pretty quickly, I found, in part to some of the new digital history tools that we have, I found just reference after reference, hundreds, thousands of citations of church fathers, of medieval history, of of particular historical works. And it turns out it was everywhere. They read it all the time. They cared deeply about its significance. Exactly. Yeah, my my experience was kind of uh, different than yours. So I grew up uh, deep in the... uh the the heart of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, the first church history I ever read was as a teenager, just ravenous to read anything. 
uh, I went to a second-end bookstore, which is where I could afford books. And uh, I, I bought a church history. And I thought, I cannot wait to read this. And I went home to read it. And it was a really a very pre-Vatican II uh, Catholic history of the oh, church. Wow. And so, you know, I'm in an argument all of a sudden. And so, you know, this, 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 this son of the Reformation is now uh, in this argument. Yeah. So then I went to find another history, and it was a landmarkist history. Mm, and, yes. and, you know, if you, if you could, as a, like a 16 or 17-year-old, get two books that would be in greater conflict, <laughs> it, it was that Roman Catholic history of the church and this landmarkist Baptist history of the church. That's and uh, frankly, what struck me is that even though I, I was uh, not much of an academic historian at age 16, I can recognize that neither one of them is actually doing what I would consider to be academic history. They're making mm -hmm. arguments with history. Mm -hmm. That's right. And you're really making an argument about arguments about history. That's right. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. So, I mean, the there was a strong sense, I think, um, uh, among every denomination in the time period yeah. that I look at, which is roughly the revolution, end of the revolution through the Civil War, that the, the that history had a meaning for the present and that history was on our side, especially church history. And whether that's a pretty negative take on church history, that it's mostly a story of corruption and and human error and um, and, and these sorts of things or or another narrative, um, they're certainly using history. But what's interesting to me is that they didn't of course, see it that way. They thought that they were being pretty objective. And even the... Well, they kind the, of were by the standards of their day. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, they, they were erudite. They had read... I mean, often, you know, I, I realized I had moments of chagrin when I'm reading these sources and quibbling with them. You know, they're better educated than I am by the standards of their day, right? They had read all of the literature there was to read. They had read church fathers in Latin and Greek they were steeped in the best history they had. And so I think that's exactly right. They were doing probably the best they could. Now, there were some unquestioned assumptions that we might be able to see more clearly today um, that they were harder for them to see, but they they were serious, right? So they weren't, it wasn't a, a sort of, um, they weren't trying to be loosey-goosey with history. They weren't, um, uh, you know, being flippant about it. They were quite serious about the study of it. You know, I am uh, speaking to you from Louisville, Kentucky, which is one giant geographical argument about church history. And uh, the seminary is right here in this beautiful, established uh, uh, neighborhood. And uh, you go left or right, you're right into an argument in church history. If you go right, you're, you're headed into Catholic territory. And uh, there, it's not just a Catholic-Protestant argument. It's an Irish Catholic versus German Catholic argument. <laughs> and uh, But if you go the other way, uh, the, the first major church, other than a Catholic church that you will pass, uh, is a church that uh, was, until the, the 19th century, was a Baptist church. And, and now it's a Christian church. That is to say, uh, you know, uh, uh, as associated yeah. with the, the uh, actually the disciples of Christ in that case. But there are many other mm -hmm. churches, Christian churches, churches of Christ, and uh, right. so you, you just look at all the arguments on one street here in Louisville. And yet, yeah. when it comes to the evangelicals, they were saying, and, and we understand this. And so uh, th this, this is an argument about history occasioned by your book. But many of the groups that said their sole authority for doctrine was the Bible. Actually, when they argued for their own denomination, uh, they went right to church history. That's right. And and it, there's a bit of a, I mean, it sounds like an irony there, but the, the logic is 
you know, it, it becomes pretty widespread among almost every Protestant denomination, even some of the more traditionalist ones uh, in the 19th century to claim that they were relying on scripture alone and that they were primitive Christianity, that they represented the apostolic ideal in their denomination. So, of course, the disciples of Christ would say this, but even, I mean, you'll get Presbyterians saying this, you'll get Episcopalians arguing that Episcopalian right. religion is primitive Christianity. And so... That um, one is a hard argument to make, but you're right. It was attempted. <laughs> yeah. And 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 it, what it comes down to is, you know, everyone's... Uh, uh, and virtually everyone's in agreement that scripture is authoritative and it's divine. So the question then becomes, well, how do you show your denomination as the faithful reader of scripture and the inheritor of, of scripture? And you have to pretty quickly start talking about what Christians have said and done before you. And, and most of them, of course, share this sort of Constantinian fall narrative that there is this right. pure pre-Constantinian church, which is the church of the martyrs and the persecuted and that after the church you know, of the gospel, that, exactly. And that after the after the church and the empire become more closely allied in the fourth century, you know, you get um, a, a pretty steep decline into corruption and abuse of power. Um, and, and of course, that there's variance on that narrative, right? There'll there'll be concern about the influence of Greek philosophy before Constantine and these things. But what this gets them into is, you know, basically, if there's something you like. If there's something that seems to support your denominational distinctives or your position on one of these big um, questions, you know, um, women's roles or slavery or infant um, baptism. Exactly. Um, anything that you can find in that history that seems to support your case, you can say, well, that's the pure ideal. Anything you don't like, that's the human corruption. And, and, and you know, there's plausible cases to be made sometimes on both sides of these questions. Sure. So it becomes a pretty usable history precisely because there is a a sort of tacit agreement that a lot of it's corrupt and a lot of it, yeah. but but underneath you can find the sort of faithful kernel. So I uh, I appreciated your book and uh, have been looking forward to this conversation, but a part of me wants to press back long before the American context of your book um, and back into the area of a lot of my own academic work, which mm -hmm. is that if you go back to the 16th century, the yeah. reading of uh, the, the magisterial reformers, in particular Calvin and Luther, with Calvin more careful than Luther in this respect, was that there's a continuity and a discontinuity. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the continuity mm -hmm. was there. I mean, after uh, the citations of uh, Scripture, it's Augustine and Bernard of Clairvaux who are, uh, who are cited more than anyone else. So Calvin's out to argue there is a continuous tradition. The Roman Catholic Church has abdicated uh, that, that tradition and the gospel. But they're not trying to repudiate 15 centuries of church history. They're, they're trying to say, uh, this is a reform. And indeed, going back to Luther, it's, it, it's not a reestablishment of the church. Luther would have had a heart attack over that. Uh, Christ established his church. But, but this is a reform of the church. And then, just to test my thesis for a moment, if, if you go into the early Protestant period, with the, with the you know, exception of the Anabaptists, um, you basically have arguments over who has the most tradition and, and who, who has the greatest claim to this continuity. And, and then you come to the United States and you really do have a very different context because here you have competition with all these churches in the, the colonies and, and then on the frontier. And so, you know, it, at least a part of the way I see it is that these churches on the frontier 
and, and in the colonies. They were basically throwing every argument they could grab at one another because there's a clear distinction between Baptists and the Methodists and, and on the frontier in particular, and, and later the, uh, the Campbellite movements. Uh, but there's also a distinction in the cities with the Episcopalians and, and the, the, the others. So is, is, is that the way you see it, that this was an American innovation of sorts? I think that, that there's a lot to that. There's no question that the early reformers would have been, I think, pretty aghast to to hear, you know, the their great grandchildren, um, you know, throwing out creed and confession and throwing out and, and tradition becoming a sort of um, a swear word almost. Um, you know, they are. I, I think you're right. Calvin, especially, is deeply read in the fathers and sees his project is in continuity with the church fathers and the you know the great tradition. Um, and there, you know, the question becomes then what's what, what changes in the American context and why? And of course, one of the big things in the backdrop, as you alluded to, is religious competition. The, the, Which wasn't possible in most of Europe. Exactly. Exactly. This is a new and thing in the United States. It's a new thing. And, you know, Mark Knoll has written so incredibly, you know, widely on this. But I think he does show that there is a kind of American approach to theology and scripture that that is significantly different in character from European Protestants. It's more optimistic about, you know, all we need is common sense. It's a little more distrustful of received authority and tradition. It's um, it's combined with a republic, you know, lower R Republican ideology. And um, and this means that um, you know, in Noel's reading, there's a kind of, um, uh, it, it's able to innovate, it's able to flourish, it's able to Christianize the nation in a remarkable degree. I mean, the project is remarkably successful, and it really starts to fracture over the question of slavery and the Civil War in, in Noel's reading. And, you know, I think he's, I think he's pretty much entirely right about all that. The question is, you know, is this an actual change or is it just a rhetorical change? Because at the same time that a pastor or a professor or a denomination will say, we are not relying on tradition. It's just the Bible for us that, you know, all the other denominations have been corrupted by humans. They'll then go on to cite these, these traditional, I mean, even Alexander Campbell, who you'd think would be the most serious about discarding church history and tradition the very first edition of the millennial millennial harbinger he he says we need church history one of the biggest needs for this movement of restoration is a new account of the history of the church we have to know this history other than the bible this is the most important thing to study yeah and then he'll even i my favorite little um uh you know anecdote is that he even cites thomas aquinas in defense of his view of baptism um, when he's in an argument. So I, I think you're right. When push comes to shove, part of it is the argument. And when push comes to shove in an argument, man, you'll bring anything in that'll help right. you win. It's like a high school debating team. Exactly. Yeah, you know, what, 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 whatever's handy, you throw into the argument. But I do think it is, it's telling that after Scripture, uh, history comes you know, rather necessarily to the fore because you have to argue, how, how did this doctrine get developed? How did this... How did this practice right. emerge and the history of the church? I, I want to ask you a, a kind of a more fundamental question in historiography, yeah. because your book, uh, The Old Faith in a New Nation, is, is really about historiography and even the history of historiography, oddly enough, in, in certain places. 
So we talk about history as a discipline we understand, uh, an academic discipline contested to be sure. But, but again, if the history department's over there in that building, we think we know what they're up to. Uh, but church history was not a discipline. It became a discipline. Right. Uh, in really in the 19th century. And, and it didn't start in, in the sense of a modern scientific historiography in the United States. It started in Germany, but it quickly kind of shows up in arguments here. So tell that story. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, it traditionally we talk about um, discipline coming over from Germany with Philip Schaff and the Mercersburg right. theologians and the founding of the American Society of Church History and all this. And that's definitely that's definitely So why, why is that new? I'm just interrupting you. But in other words, sure. why, why wasn't there a Department of Church History at, at Padua, you know, in, in the 11th century? What, what, why was that necessary now? Why did it happen? Yeah. Why did it happen now? Oh, man, that's a big question. I mean, so, I mean, you're right to start with um, the early history of of reform and the, the first generation of Protestant reformers, because this is in some ways, it's a Renaissance thing and it's a Protestant thing. It's a distrust of the recent, the recent past that gets, you know, folks like Kelvin and Luther and Erasmus looking back at, at, at sources, you know, recovering the I original Hebrew and Greek, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that that distrust of the recent past is built into, I think, both a Protestant um, uh, approach to scripture and hermeneutics and also and, and church authority, which is all bound up together. Right. Um, but also the rise of uh, the modern academy. And so, you know, the particular form that the 19th century um, study of church history takes comes out of this German sort of um scientific approach to the past right there's there's a way in which we can approach the past like we approach natural sciences that we can isolate variables that we can understand the context and 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 discern the sort of immutable truths underneath the often the language is is kernel and husk right um but there's something fascinating there isn't there because all, all of a sudden you have these germans and uh, we can throw them under the bus for all kinds of reasons, uh, including the liberal theology that came out and, and, and the fact that they thought they could apply everything to every discipline the same way, whether it's historiography or the scientific you know, method, et cetera. But, but the Germans were onto this, and that is you hear this fantastic tale of the past, you hear that fantastic tale of the past. They clearly can not both be true. It's possible that neither's true. But it really starts with an early confidence that there is some way to try to reconstruct the past, right? That, I mean, that's not a bad idea. No, it's not. And, and I mean, there's a, I feel of two minds about this, because on the one hand, excuse me, you have a, you have a desire for truths, right? And you right. have a, a sense that truth matters so much that what we say about the past, what we teach about the past, it, it matters a lot that we get it right. And that to me, I think, is a Christian impulse as well, right? It's sure. not just a modern one, but but the the, the tension there. The, the flip side is that I do, you know, I I think that belief in um, in Christ's promise to build His church is also a matter of faith. It's a matter of right. trusting Christ's promise, and so there is a kind of skepticism that you see, especially in the 18th century, toward everything that's been believed about the the the. The church's past and especially the catholic past right the right. the importance of a deep rooted not just a disagreement with catholicism but an, an antipathy a real hatred of everything catholic that i think leads 
to a pretty corrosive kind of skepticism. You'll often see in one generation, the skepticism that's applied to the history of the church and the next generation be applied to scripture itself. And, And you can see the logic of this, right? If Christ has been, if Christ's promise to build his church has failed for most of the Christian past, then it, it kind of makes you question the root of the whole thing, right? And right, but that it, is not the way the reformers would have made the argument, as you know. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's not the only Protestant approach, and it's certainly not the only right. Protestant answer to the the questions and problems posed by Christian history. But there's both a, I mean, I think the, the desire to get at the truth, to get beneath the myth and the fable and the, the outright corruption right. is commendable. Um Often the sort of um, the skepticism that that takes can be, I think, really corrosive. And and frankly, I mean, you know, when I get at this at the end of the book, but just the unquestioned assumptions, like the notion of, for example, the Dark Ages, that medieval Europe was was yes. um, you know, by exactly ignorance and superstition. We now mm-hmm. know that this is a, a very flawed historical view of of medieval Europe. And how we can see more clearly how much that was conditioned by uh, anti-Catholicism. But this is just so assumed as to not even need to be argued in the time right. period I'm looking at. Everyone knows that this is true. But speaking no of Catholicism, to- by the time you get to the 19th century, the Roman Catholic Church has made the study of history, at least in, in church institutions, ab- absolutely under the control of the magisterium. So in other words, the Catholic Church yeah. has an investment in how this story is told. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. And and just to go back to a, a part of your prior question about what changes in the 19th century, really church history is the domain of the seminaries. And, and the goal of seminary education in church history is to really help solidify your conviction that fill in the blank, Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist um, theology is correct. So it's in service of denominational formation. And um, that doesn't mean, again, that they're not serious. That doesn't mean they're uncritical. They're often really wrestling with the sources they have. Right. They're asking hard questions about, do we know if this is true or not? Um, but it is in service of shoring up denominational identity. When the Germans emerge yeah. in the 1840s and 50s, Baptists and Presbyterians and Reformed folks, they all start, they're quite panicked about this. And they start yeah. saying, we need to do better. We need to create our own standards for church history and our own research, we need to invest in institutions. We got to hire they, people. Exactly. Yeah. So you can see that there's a lot at stake. Everyone knows that this is not, um, you know, this is not just an academic exercise. That there is a real um, crisis if if these Protestant assumptions about church history start to be questioned. But but in terms of of the the Protestant world, and uh, as the new world is uh, appropriating the uh, scholarly works of even the old world, there's only one book of church history. You know, or, or fairly early in the 19th century, I, I just think that's shocking to people. Uh, there, there, there's one book, and everybody's got to use it until other people write new books. But, More or but less, tell the story. Yeah. Yeah, tell the story of that one book. Yeah, the, the main one is this. Um, it's this Lutheran church history written by Johann uh, Lorenz von Mosheim, and he writes this. It's it's a pretty balanced approach for its day. He's trying to remain fit. He, he's friends with a lot of the German Enlightenment folks, right? And but he wants to remain, you know, more or less true to Orthodox Lutheranism, and he's trying to strike a middle ground there. He's trying to use to explain the history of the church as much as he can by cause and effect, by context, to recover the human side of the story, and not just say everything was providence and there's no other explanation. 
Uh, but he's not trying to be sort of radically skeptical either. And so he writes this. It's translated into English um, uh, first by a dissenter in in, uh, in England. Um, it's it's really the primary textbook um, that's that's going to be used for a few generations in American virtually seminaries. Virtually everywhere. Yeah. Not everybody likes it. A lot of complaints about his Lutheranism sneaking in. They'll sometimes, you know, uh, folks like Samuel Miller at Princeton will pair this yeah. with Joseph Milner, who's the evangelical Anglican historian. Right. And Milner's history is much more pious in the sense that he's just trying to inspire your faith. So Milner is looking at the past and saying, hey, you know, um, Bernard loved Jesus, you can tell. And so I don't like what he says about right. these things, but he clearly knew and loved Christ. And and Samuel Miller at Princeton will say, you know, you get a lot of good critical stuff from Mossheim here and you get, but, but he kind of doesn't have the warmth and doesn't have the feeling that you'd like. It's not as edifying. So you throw in a little bit of Milner, but in his notes on his lectures, Miller will say, you know, neither of these are really adequate. We need a better Protestant history. Um, when the German stuff starts coming over in the forties and fifties, August Neander, you know, his works are translated that gets picked up, but it's, it's really interesting how, you know, you'll get complaints from virtually all sides that the Protestant historiography is lacking and nobody knows really what to do about it for, for a few generations. I think it's astounding that uh, that more significant works in church history were not written during that period, because during the yeah. this interdenominational competition, which was just raging just about everywhere, you would think someone would have stopped and say, you know, hey, we, we better assign somebody to write a good two or three volume history of the church in order to make our, our argument. But yeah. that doesn't emerge, uh, actually, at least in Baptist life, really until the end of the 19th century. And, and frankly, right. it's still pretty embryonic until you get to the 1920s. Yeah. Um, so pretty much the same thing in some other denominations. But for Mossheim, let me just ask you to move to Philip Schaff, because I, I think that's yeah. a big part of the story. Yeah, that's right. And just on that point, yeah. um, I think this is part of why landmarkism gets such a following is because there's not a lot of other compelling alternatives. And right? they can and give you a chart. Exactly. They can yeah. map everything out. Good guys, bad guys, above the line, below the line. Yep. That's it's exciting stuff. Not that I ever heard that when I was a young person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Schaff is really interesting because he, you know, he appears to many to be, um, undermining the whole project because his vision of church history is more organic. So he sees church history unfolding from the era of the apostles through, um, you know, the, the rise of the papacy and Catholicism into the reformation. He sees the reformation as an outgrowth of medieval Catholicism and, and in a, in a lot of ways, the fulfillment of it. And he actually thinks that where the whole project is going is, a sort of in the future, and he, he comes to believe in America, a, a unified church that has both sort of Peter and Paul that sort of sees a reconciliation and and a, a recovery of Christian unity. So it's this very, I mean, a very romantic, capital R romantic, very German organic. It feels Hegelian to It right? is exactly Hegelian. Yeah, precisely yeah. in its structure. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's, you know, he's, there's a lot of concern that he's really a closet Catholic, right? 
there's charges of heresy brought there's you know when he's teaching at mercersburg seminary he assigns um in one semester he assigns some john henry newman to be read and a, a number of students um quit the seminary and protest right they drop out rather than read newman um but it could be dangerous even, stuff in that context i would add oh sure yeah yeah, yeah quite newman, explosive, you know yeah. as a seminary mm -hmm. newman can lead you all kinds of places um but, you know, his more shops, more careful readers, including the Princeton folks, right, Miller and um, uh, the others there, um, they they see they don't agree with everything he says, but they don't they see that he's onto something that this is not just a um, it, he's not a closet Catholic. He's what he's trying to do is understand um, the actual development of things. And, and rather than see Luther and Kelvin as the first moderns or something like this, that he's recovering the sense in which they come out of, they come out of the church and they come right. out of this, um, medieval tradition that they're steeped in. And, um, so, you know, he's, I, I really like Schaff. I don't, again, I, he, he feels pretty anachronistic to read now, but there's a kind of, He's able to do his work with the conviction that the church's history is essential to her mission. And he, right. as much as he's a scholar, he's a pastor who sees that, you know, that understanding and loving the church with all its foibles and flaws in the past is essential to loving it today. And there's something I think compelling about that, even though I, I'm not going to get on board with all of his readings of of the various um, you know, moments in church history. Right. Theologically, uh, I, I am, I'm not commending Philip Schaff at all. Uh, but in terms of history, a couple of things that I would note. Number one, he's actually interesting. He's, yes. he's a much better narrator than, say, Mosheim. That's right. Uh, he, uh, he's, he's, he writes with uh, this Hegelian uh, uh, background, actually gives him a pretty good framework to tell a narrative. And uh, so... You know, right. uh, uh, Philip Schaff's work is is still in print today. You know, yeah. is is still available today. Um, and uh, you know, it's also interesting to me that a, a, as president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, you go back to the birth of this institution, and I, I was pleased to see you you made reference to this in your book. Yes. You know, when James Pettigrew Boyce, our founder in 1856, delivers that address, three changes in theological education. Uh, one of the big points he made is that we've got to we've got to win this church history argument, and yeah. that needs to be a part of the theological curriculum. That's right. Yeah, and for Boyce, it's right up there again. As we already said, it's right up there with the study of Scripture. You know, right behind really understanding Scripture is this this need not just. And here's where Boyce is interesting. He he he's sort of right at the crux of this change, not just. Um to, you know, plug our ears and say, don't read Newman and Schaff, but to say we need, right. we need our own research. We need to get to the sources ourselves. And he we had need... all of those books in his personal library and they were the, they, they became the core of the seminary's collection. Uh, so he, he was unafraid for students to read widely, uh, but he also wanted them to read in a way that was directed by the faculty. Mm, mm-hmm. I didn't know that about his library in the in the seminaries. That's great. And that's not surprising. I mean, he, you know, these Schaff and these other um, the, the other German historiography and the Oxford movement, which doesn't play a big role in this story, but it's in the backdrop. The, you know, these set off alarm bells. And I think, um, you know, Baptists aren't alone in saying we really need to devote institutional resources to this um, to to not be sort of easily 
um, captivated by these um, right. these other theories. And you know, Boyce uh, in the Southern Baptist context, he gets he gets buffeted from two different directions, and uh, the the second one really doesn't show up uh, in 1856 or even in 1859 when the school was founded, and that becomes landmarkism. That 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 is not yeah. really on his screen in 1856. Yeah. But uh, but the claims of kind of an Enlightenment history. Uh, you know, matched to what he saw as a theological liberalism that was uh, spreading uh, within the theological academy. He, he he saw history as a necessary apologetic. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's right. And there's a sense in which um, you know this is always the opportunity with history. Is it? It appears at least to get at something empirical that you know we can disagree about interpretation, but you know, the facts are the facts. And of course, this is more complicated than it, and we can't always agree on the facts, but there is a sense in which it allows a way through some of these, um, or at least it, it, it promises this way through. And, you know, as, as you know, by the end of the book, I'm a little bit pessimistic about this, that history actually didn't tend to do this for people. Um, that as much as I think history matters and right. as much as I believe in, in, in reading history as, as essential and teaching good history, that we tend to, I think sometimes to be a little too optimistic that no. history has the definitive answer for all of our questions. And if we would just be in good faith about it, we, you know, the right view would prevail. And it, it, it turns out that often that's not how it's worked. Right. And don't we know that now in contemporary discussions of you know, about Absolutely. history? You know, uh, uh, you, you see all this back uh, to the fore. But I want to go back to uh, the origins of church history as a discipline, because, you know, it, it's really uh, made very much a part of the Southern Seminary curriculum going back to the founding. And it, it's really right. kind of put under church government. But it emerges as a distinct field. You know, we have one of the oldest endowed chairs in church history anywhere. And I, I do think that that's a, that's a big jump. You wouldn't have found the same thing a um, hundred years before at all. And, and now everybody's got to have an historian. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, my sense of why that's happening in the 1850s is related to the dissatisfaction that we talked about with prior Protestant history. So that most times just not going to cut it anymore. Right. Um, a concern with the sort of German romantics and the enlightenment, but also by then a real concern with Catholicism, right? Catholicism by 1850 is appears, you know, to actually have um, a foothold in the U S in a way that it didn't a generation before. Right. And Much more a concern in the North at that time than in the South. At that time, uh, but also in the West, right, in what we now say the Midwest, right? right. So Ohio, for example, right, is right. it's quite concerning. You know, Lyman Beach will write a plea for the West. He's saying these Catholics right. are beating us to the frontier, and they're founding schools, and they're educating our young. And um, so I think that's another you know, another piece there. Um, and the, the discipline, the, you know, the research around it, the, or the research that comes from this in these institutions is, um, it, it's still defensively Protestant, but I think it is aiming to do something that's more substantial than what you saw in the 18th century. And yeah. what's interesting to me is, and, you know, I'm getting a little bit out of my field here, because I'm mostly a 19th century historian, but 
it does seem that if you jump forward a century to the mid 20th century and to more recent um, evangelical history in America, that some of that interest has had waned, it, not on an institutional level. It's not as if church history stopped being taught in seminaries, but it, it seems at least um, to me, and this is anecdotal, I suppose, because I'm, again, not a history of the historian of the 20th century, that that church history doesn't matter as much to the sort of, um, uh, in the last 50 years of American evangelicalism as it did in my time. And maybe that's because the controversies then um, brought it to the fore, but it, it seemed like there was more of a commitment historically among evangelicals to really to, to really invest in church history. Well, I, th- I think we have two big problems in evangelical uh evangelism, we might just say, but the evangelical academy. One is that uh, so much of the renaissance of historical interest was in particular of uh, what we would call modern church history, and specifically in the United mm-hmm. States. And so you have right. this, this entire converse of faith and history and uh, the, the whole approach is rise, which, by the way, was kind of parallel to a rise in Christian philosophy in the academy uh, with uh, uh, Alvin Plantinga and, and, and so many others. But what what was really missing from that was historical theology in terms of, say, history of doctrine. And, and also, uh, there just wasn't a lot of Reformation history. Interestingly, then, I, I, yeah. I think there's a lot of Reformation history going on at Princeton, uh, you know, uh, uh, far, far more than is going on among evangelicals. Mm, that's right. Yeah, that's. I think, I think that's a good point. I think there is something that's... Um, when the past is being discussed, it's the more recent past. It's the American past. It's where the controversies and, are hotter right now. Exactly. Yeah, and um, and and maybe that you know, there's there's always exceptions to this, but it does seem like your average evangelical uh, minister, seminary trained minister in say 1850, was much more steeped in the the whole history of the church and and in the church fathers even than than you might find in the last half decade, you know, half century or so. But that's, again, that's anecdotal. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, just, just, just from my vantage point, I would say, I think, uh, kind of to push back on that a little bit, I, I would move that back to 50 years mm-hmm. that began to change mm-hmm. 25 years ago. So right. go back right. 75 years. I think the first 50 years, that was true. But I yeah. mean, nowadays you look at, uh, at for example, even uh, evangelical publishers such as Crossway, and uh, not to mention Zondervan Erdman, you just got on the list. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of historical work. There's That's a right. lot of work in terms of uh, the Apostles' Creed uh, yes. and uh, your, you know, your Reformation history. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, the, and, yeah. and that, that would have been kind of unthinkable That's uh, right. 30 or 40 years ago. And That's so right. uh, anyway, I'm, I'm just saying I, 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 I think there's a real hunger among younger evangelicals for a deeper historical uh, sense of of rootage, Absolutely. and I think I think that's a very good thing. But I I don't think it came yes. out of nowhere. It didn't come out of yeah. nowhere, and I think I think you're right. I I think that way of narrating the chronology works, and I think that you know that hunger. Um, sometimes the 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 sense, well, we don't have this, so I have to go find it somewhere else in in orthodoxy or in Roman Catholicism. That this is part of the the loss that evangelical right. a lack of attention. It's to evangelical self harm. Exactly. Yeah. And in some ways, my my book slightly, I don't think I say this explicitly, but, you know, Newman, of course, said to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And and I'm trying to show that just on, a, on an empirical level, that's not the case, that Protestants right. were 
were as deeply steeped as you can be. That doesn't mean the readings of it were right at every point or that there wasn't bias involved or there weren't problems. But um, historically, it's been the case that evangelicals and Protestants in general deeply cared about the past and cared about tradition. And there's no reason why that that can't continue. You do not say this in your book. So I I may be uh, just mischaracterizing your argument. But it seems to me there's no little irony uh, in the fact that when you look at the restorationist movements and uh, the, the primitivist arguments that emerged in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they're denying the importance of history while making arguments 24-7 about history. You know, even right. in trying to argue against, um, you know, whether it's apostolic succession or, you know, an organic continuity of the church. They're making historical arguments all the time. And and I was born into that, just in terms of understanding church history, you know, that uh, there's this line of faithfulness, uh, you know, you know the, 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 the yep. whole idea of uh, that, that continuity. And of course, it, uh, it included an awful lot of people who we would not want to include, knowing what we know about them now. But there was an impulse behind it to say this is the true yes. church. And and like I say, right here in Louisville, Kentucky, here in the Kentucky frontier, you know, the battle between the Baptist argument and the restorationist argument was massive. And yeah. you know, like the history of the church is right along the street shows it. That's right. There is some irony there. I mean, th- this is one of the ironies is that at the same time, you would have to say, we're we're getting around church history back to the primitive ideal you'd have to use a whole lot of church history to try to show that and defend that um and i think a similar irony with saying i'm relying only on scripture and to prove it i'm going to quote some church fathers to you right and so there's there's a sense in which all this all this shows is that it's impossible to be without a tradition this is this this is what it means to be human it's what it means to be any kind of christian so the question is not whether or not you have that sense of history or tradition, but where did it come from, and and um, you know yeah. what is it what does it rely on? I, so, I was helped by reading an Anglican when I was in my early twenties, who said the claim of sola scriptura must not be confused with the claim of scriptura nuda. That's right. Uh, you know, it, it's it's scripture alone is the sole final authority, but no one reads the scripture without being traditioned. That's right. That's right. And it's this is at least a base level for for then moving forward into how then do we discern um, a faithful tradition from an unfaithful one and these sorts of questions. But but there's I think there's something happening in the 1800s, especially maybe the first 50 or 60 years of the century, where there's quite a bit of rhetorical advantage to be had by saying, look, I didn't get this from anywhere but scripture. And, you know, bringing in historical authorities along the way didn't seem to to register as an as a contradiction to that right and so um i, I think there was certainly an anti-tradition ethos the question is is what they said what they did and it turns out that i mean they certainly cared deeply about scripture and studied it very carefully but and i think legitimately believe they were biblicists in other words I, I i i i'm, I'm going to stake my life on solo scriptura but again, that right. does not mean that we're reading Scripture as if we don't know anything about how Scripture has been read. Exactly. That's exactly right. Scripture is still central, of course. And you can, you know, at least in theory, change someone's mind if you can show them what Scripture says doesn't agree with what with. But what isn't that what's saying. happening? And this is where I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm reading what Professor Goodacre's doing here. 
Uh, I can see a parallel project of making the same argument in American political discourse. Looking at the arguments, especially with the looming, you know, crisis between the North and the South, you have two rival histories going on here. That's right. You have uh, rival histories of democracy going on here and histories of the Republic. So everybody's arguing history, right? And right down to the headlines of today's newspaper. Exactly. That's right. And so it's interesting because, excuse me, there's this stereotype of Americans being disinterested in history. But I mean, history is arguably the most read and argued over subject in my time period and continues to be. I mean, the claims about the past that are made you know, within five minutes of any given talk show or, yeah. or, or news feed, it's always there. And, and you know, I mean, this is part of what can be exciting about teaching history um, when I do at Baylor or when I do at the Brazos Fellows is that we get the chance to sort of learn some tools for thinking critically about that. But um, I think you see in a lot of people an exhaustion about this as sort of, well, we can't really know and everyone right. has their version of it. And so throw up your hands and and walk away. And Unfortunately, the way in which history has become so politicized and so partisan and and um, and, you know, the activists on both sides using history, um, this this tends to lead to everyone reading history with a sense of this has some implication um, for issue X. And and that can be an impatience with history. I think we need to be able to to we need to be able to make connections between the past and the present and talk about implications. We also need to show a kind of patience to the past where it might surprise us, where it might not say exactly what we hoped it would say, um, where it's meaning it won't be immediately useful in a given argument. And a lot of the a lot of the uses of history that I look at in the book, I think many of them at least were impatient uses of history. Sure. Um, we're but, just but instructive in their own way, right? I mean, one of the surprises in your book for me uh, was the extent to which women in American church history were writing explicitly historical works. Yes, and, uh, right. you know, that, that really has not been, I think, well-known or well-documented. And uh, so, so what was behind that? Why, why, why was there a particular impulse among American Christian women to make these arguments about history? Yeah, I think there's a few things there. One is that history had been seen for a few generations as particularly important for educated young women, that history teaches, you know, moral truths through example, that history gives you a sense of what you're supposed to do. And it inspires, right? It enlivens. So American women, to the extent that there's a significant investment in in women's education in American history, I mean, this is one of the ways in which America truly is exceptional in the 19th century. Um, much higher rates of female literacy than anywhere else right. in the world. Half of the even on the frontier. Oh yeah, absolutely. Half of the academies by 1850 are for women. I mean, it is really remarkable the, the degree of education of American women, and that's fed in a lot of ways by evangelicals, by uh, the Puritan legacy of valuing yeah. scripture, by evangelical missionary uh, movements, right? And so, history, you know, scripture is preeminent. You know, women need to know the Bible. Yeah. But also they need they really need to know history to be a Republican mother, right, to raise good citizens. And so you already have that. And then what you see happening around the 1830s is new attention to there have been women in the Christian past, it turns out. It's not just a history of men. And in fact, behind those men, behind the Augustans and the Gregories, you know, the the Constantines, there the are Martin mothers Luther's and wives. For crying exactly. out loud, you know, the, uh, Katie is the first spouse uh, routinely featured in the uh, 
the the paintings of uh, uh right. of her husband in this case you see martin and katie together in a way that that yes broke the rules and just a flag my my colleague sam young has just finished um uh, his dissertation on martin luther in america precisely um you, you'll, you'll want to look for this one I'm yeah sure i'm interested already yeah, I yes. have to tell you, you know, you mentioned the creation of these female schools or, or schools for young women. They were often called seminaries, you know, which That's is right. a far more generic term. Yes. And and that leads me to something I, I don't think I've ever said in public before, as we're thinking in public. Uh, I received a, a letter back when we received letters, you know, people wrote people on paper. Uh, I've been in this office long enough that uh, I've, I've seen that transition. And I got a letter, which meant there's no immediate way to respond. Uh, and, and the letter asked me, with, with great offense, why in the world Southern Seminary had an equestrian team? And, uh, you know, what, what kind of use was this of, uh, of, of good Baptist Monday to be training preachers if we have an equestrian team? Now, uh, that, that led to a certain crisis in my mind because I did not know we had an equestrian team. And it turns out, by the way, that, of course, we do not. But a school called Southern Seminary, which is one of those uh, uh, antebellum schools for the education of young women in Virginia, has a prize-winning equestrian team. And uh, so it just it just goes to show that uh, history can come around and bite you at times. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You That's know, right. Uh, the, the timetable of your book, and, and I recognize this is rooted in your research. And so, you, you know, you don't bring this up to 2023. You really begin with uh, end with the crisis of the Civil War, and uh, I understand that as a breaking point, uh, because for one thing, you've you've got to write an entirely different kind of history of the United States after 1865 or so. Yes, yeah. But but just kind of tell us how history and arguments about church history factored into that sectarian divide between the North and the South before the war. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, this is in a lot of ways the heart of the project, which is why there's a few chapters that deal with this, but both sides are convinced they're on the right side of church history. And so by by the time you get to the 1850s, certainly once the denominations are all splintering, you know, in the in the 1840s and, and the Presbyterians again in 57, you know, the there's an increasing sense on both sides that Christians throughout time have been with us on this question, right? And so from the pro-slavery side, a, uh, you know, citations of various church fathers, of councils, minor and major councils, just a sense like Christians throughout time have enslaved people and that this is, if this was out of bounds, if this was immoral um, in principle, then Christ would have made it more clear in scripture. And on the other hand, an abolitionist argument or even an anti-slavery argument that's a little milder will point to the ameliorating effect of Christianity on slavery, will will point to the you know, virtual disappearance of it in medieval Christendom, and will say, this is, this is what Christianity has always done. So there's a little bit of a spirit and letter difference there, right? The letter of the Christian past versus the spirit, which trajectory is it on versus what can we pinpoint um, but this just, I think, encourages both sides to be sure that not only does the other side get scripture wrong, but they're just denying the plain facts of, of Christian. They're standing against the force of Christian history. I think it makes both sides less likely to be able to actually reason together to come to some kinds of agreement. I think it deepens the divide. And so 
you know, there are some readings of the theological crisis of slavery that seem to sort of suggest the problem was that they just used the Bible only, right? And in fact, I think church history being introduced into the debate, which it really is from 1840 on, it's a prominent part of the the argument between pro and anti-slavery Christians. I think it made the debate more intractable. I think it made things much more difficult in some ways um, because it just strengthened the conviction that each side had that theirs was a holy cause. Well, I did find your book fascinating. And uh, it, with twists and turns, it made me think of uh, many other books I would assign you to write, uh, just based upon what you did in this in this volume. But that does lead me to ask, so what are you working on now? Yeah, I'm interested in how Protestants, I, I did a little bit of this in this book, but how Protestants um, look back to the saints of the past. Um, we have exemplars, we have heroes. What are how are they like and different from how Catholics view saints? And I'm particularly interested in the Christian women. So Monica, the mother of Augustine, she is um a huge hit in the 19th right. century. I mean, evangelicals love her story. Right. It's got all the things they like, right? The the tears, the prayer, right. the wayward son. Then yeah. she dies, you know, so it has the sentimental. Um, well, so, so many evangelicals would suggest that her piety is exactly what should be emulated. And look, it's very sweet. Exactly. I'm not arguing against it at all. I'm just 100%. saying, you know, she she prayed for the conversion of her son and God honored her prayer. And that, that's, that's, that's right. the way Christian mothers should pray. Absolutely. So she's held up. I mean, we see this in some Puritan sermons and George Whitfield sermons, but it really booms in the 19th century. So I want to look at that. I want to write a book about how Protestants remember her and, and try to use that as a way to understand what do the the saints of the past do for Protestants? How do they inspire? How do how do they serve as exemplars? Um, so hopefully, hopefully we'll um, we'll see that. It's not under contract. Um, it's it's still very much a work in progress, but hoping to um, see that come out sometime soon. Well, they do come out one at a time, and I'll look forward to that one when it comes out. And uh, I've enjoyed this conversation, and would look forward to one on that book when it comes out. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Muller. I really appreciate your good questions and your uh, having me on. Well, Paul Guttaker, again, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thanks so much for having me. Many thanks to my guest, Paul Guttaker, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. Thinking.